This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, we'll hear a BYU campus devotional address by Dr. Jennifer B. Nielsen, teaching professor in the chemistry and the biochemistry department, titled Experiment and Experience. It was given March 3, 2015. We're pleased to have Jennifer Nielsen, a teaching professor in the chemistry and biochemistry department, as our speaker today. Professor Nielsen received a bachelor's degree from BYU and went on to earn her master's and doctorate degrees from the University of California, San Diego. Dr. Nielsen has published research on physical organic chemistry, and her current research interests are in science literacy and chemical education in Uganda. She serves on the Society Committee on Education for the American Chemical Society and on a task force for international chemistry education. Sister Nielsen received, served a mission in Recife, Brazil, and enjoys serving in the young women organizations of her ward and stake. She's married to Daniel Nielsen, a professor in the political science department, and they have three children. Now we'll have the opportunity of hearing from Sister Jennifer Nielsen. I have to tell you how much I love working and living in a college town. I get to see so many wonderful students. When I was, uh, I don't know, I think Rob was about five, it was a few years back, we were out shopping and I met a bunch of students as, as frequently happens. And it was great because he finally looked up at me kind of wide-eyed and said, Mom, every place we go, people know you. Are you famous? <laughs> and of course I said, yes. <laughs> and I may not be famous, but I am so blessed to work with so many fantastic colleagues and friends and to have so many great students. They inspire me in many ways. Uh, many of my students are here. My Chem 285 class actually meets every day at noon. So today, they get a short one-day reprieve from amino acids and proteins. But they should be suspicious <laughs> that I'm going to work something in from today's devotional on tomorrow's quiz. So, pay attention. <laughs> That's right. As a brand new chemistry graduate student at the University of California, San Diego, my faculty advisor, Dr. Charlie Perrin, had asked me to do the very relatively easy task of replicating the experiments from a student who was just leaving our lab. The results from that project were going to be published in the American Chemical, in the Journal of the American Chemical Society. It's a top journal in my field. When I finished the experiment, my results were the opposite of what the original findings were. I repeated that experiment several times. Again, it didn't match. Uh, I began to panic. <laughs> my failure to replicate felt like evidence that I was terrible in the lab. I took my results to my advisor, and he was surprised. He suggested a series of modified molecules in which I could repeat similar experiments. I worked hard. I purified materials. I read literature techniques. I did a mountain of experiments. I talked to my, my favorite friend in chemistry, Julie, about ideas. And at the end of a long day, I would come home and worry out loud to my husband, Dan. And in the end, what we learned is that the original results were inaccurate. And eventually, we published the paper in the same journal, retracting the first claim, proposing a new conclusion. And in fact, the title changed from the original. It was symmetries of hydrogen bond to asymmetries of hydrogen bond. <laughs> and Charlie Perrin became one of my heroes. He valued 
uh, learning truth over protecting his reputation. I mean, every time I entered one of his, uh, his office with new ideas or new results, he welcomed them. He felt that an unexpected or wrong result taught us something. And I learned so much from this experience, which has shaped me over the years, including that ice cream soothes my soul on a long day. <laughs> but what I really learned is that this experiments are here to help us gain truth. We can become stronger from struggles. Um, meaningful results actually do require a lot of time and effort. And the best, that working with others is essential. I believe that life experiences, which might also be called experiments, are meant to enable us to grow and become Christ-like. Theory is not enough. Experimenting is where theory meets reality. Doctrine remains theory in our minds until we show our belief in the doctrine by acting. Am Amulek te teaches this to the poor among the Zoramites in Alma 34.4, yea, even that ye would have so much faith as even to plant the word in your hearts that ye may try the experiment of its goodness. The word they should plant is the doctrine of the atonement. Look at verse 8. I do know that Christ shall come among the children of men to take upon him the transgressions of his people, and he shall atone for the sins of the world, for the Lord God hath spoken it. And then the experiment he exhorts them to try is verses 17 through 29, to exercise faith unto repentance, to pray always and everywhere, to take care of the needy and the naked, to visit the sick and the afflicted, and to share their substance. Experiments can also teach us whether a theory explains reality or needs to be revised or discarded. When my son Rob graduated from diapers at age two, he got his first pair of briefs emblazoned with the Spider-Man logo. And excited, he asked, does this mean I can climb walls now? And he tested his theory, and he learned he couldn't climb walls. But he confirmed a number of times he could bounce off of them. So good experiments make learning concrete, and it teaches us truth. I'm seeing firsthand the value of experiments in my chemistry education research in Uganda. Last year, Makerere University, which at 40,000 students is the largest university in East Africa and considered the most prestigious in Uganda, had just two students declare chemistry as their major, and the year before that there was only one. What could be the reason for this? And here's a clue. Students in Uganda are required to study four to six years of chemistry before they finish secondary school. Yet few of them have opportunities to learn chemistry principles through hands-on experience, through experimentation. Many secondary schools lack the adequate equipment and supplies for chemistry labs and the facilities to handle the resulting lab waste. So for most students, chemistry is pure theory. It's rote memorization. And consequently, many of the students come to see it's just too difficult and it's too pointless. The need I see from working there the past few summers is for students to experience science hands-on to make the chemistry concepts come alive and become meaningful. And my research team facilitates workshops designed to help secondary school teachers incorporate simple water-based experiments into their class and labs. The emphasis is on exploration and experience. It's on discovery and development. The word experiment and experience have the same Latin root. They come from the word experior. It means to, re to gain knowledge by repeated trials. So let's think about that word trial for a minute, because for most of us, that represents the difficult, even horrendous experiences we are having in life. But in the scientific world, trial has positive connotations. 
It refers to repeating experiments in order to learn something valuable. A clinical trial could be used, for example, to study the effect of a new drug or a medical procedure. The word trial, then, in science is not associated with just difficult parts of the experiment. It is the experiment. Interestingly, the same Latin root is in the word peritus, or tested, which is related to the word peril, reminding us that there are risks in experiments. We often find the results we would, and um, we often don't find the results we would like. There are sometimes unintended consequences, like an explosion in the lab. And yet it is through experimental trials that scientists collect enough data points to see patterns in their work and reveal truths about their world. It's actually a sufficient number of trials that lends power to an experiment. And power in this context is not talking about how important or valuable a clinical trial is or its results are. Power is referring to statistical power. It's derived from the number of observations and one of the factors that gives confidence to an experiment's results. Francis Collins, who is the current director of the National Institutes of Health, said, when we fund a clinical trial, are we making sure that it has sufficient power, that it will enroll enough participants to produce a meaningful result? Small trials with uncertain endpoints may cost less than larger, well-designed trials, but may not teach us what we need to know. Curiously, a range of experience experimental trials can also increase the possibility of uh, more successful results. In the book, Make It Stick, The Science of Successful Learning, the authors Brown, Rodiger, and McDaniel described an experiment in which eight and 12-year-olds were randomly assigned into two groups. So in the control group, blindfolded students practiced throwing beanbags at a target that was three feet away. In the treatment group, blindfolded kids practiced tossing beanbags at two feet and four feet targets. And then both groups were given repeated feedback on their attempts. The students practiced for a couple of weeks. Then they were all tested on how well they could throw a beanbag three feet. And surprisingly, the treatment group that had worked on the two feet, two foot and the four foot range, but never on the three foot range, were much more likely to hit the bullseye accurately than the control group who had only practiced that one perfect distance, suggesting that practicing a range of distances really did prepare the students better to hit the mark at testing time. The Lord's plan, the plan of salvation, provides opportunities for learning in our temporal and spiritual selves, not simply for the sake of knowing, but for the ability of doing and becoming from a multitude of experiences. You might even describe what the adversary put forth, where we would always be forced to obey as only one impoverished experience. Satan's version of the plan had neither power nor range. So I personally am grateful for the opportunity to practice, to continually improve and learn what I'm capable of and where I need to change. Honestly, I don't want the last time I cut someone off in traffic to be a single piece of evidence of who I am. Power comes when we see all of our experiences, which are often trials in both senses of the word, simply as more opportunities to practice, to practice faith, patience, resilience, love, service, forgiveness. Sure, I can forgive when it is my sister's, but can I forgive when it's my brother? I mean, I have six. When I am tired, when I am angry, when I am busy, when I am wronged. Every experience in life can be when another trial run giving us power to discover the truth about our lives and how we can change to become more like our Savior. One of my favorite missionary companions in Brazil was a convert who had joined the church at age 16. Sister Adriana had grown up in a family who owned a bar. 
She had started drinking at an early age. She told me she was addicted and giving up alcohol was the hardest thing she had ever done. When we taught investigators the word of wisdom, I could certainly share my witness of its truth, but she would share about craving alcohol and then testify that she would rather feel the Spirit and she couldn't do both. She had felt redemption from the Savior's atonement in this part of her life, and she could testify with power. That's not to say that you have to have every experience in order to find truth and fulfill your potential. You don't have to experiment with things that draw you away from God. Thankfully, our own experiences are not the only ones we have to rely on. This is one of the reasons we have family and gospel stories and pass down wisdom from generation to generation. If I have seen further, it is by standing upon the shoulders of giants, was the acknowledgement of Sir Isaac Newton. In fact, when we designed our experiments in Uganda, we didn't have to test everything. We were able to structure those workshops using the literature on science education in teacher development workshops in the United States. And likewise, when I listened to my companion's testimony of the Word of Wisdom, it confirmed my own beliefs without having me uh, experience what she went through. Now, I've got the saying, the truth will set you free, but first it will make you miserable. This is attributed to James Garfield, the 20th President of the United States. And that sure feels true sometimes. But we do have a superior way of looking at life's experiences that turn them from trials in the purely hardship sense to trials in the cumulative knowledge sense. Christ does just give us options. Christ doesn't just give us options. He gives us the power to make good choices, the power to repent and begin again after bad choices, the power to identify truths from our experiences. President Howard W. Hunter taught, if our lives and our faith are centered on Jesus Christ and His restored gospel, nothing can ever go permanently wrong. So with the Atonement, my mistakes do not become permanent, but instead are one more trial run as I'm learning how to become like Him. And when we find ourselves in a horrible experience, either through our own bad choices or the decisions of others, we can learn to turn tragedy into victory by using the Atonement. Remember in Doctrine and Covenants 122, 1 through 7, where Joseph Smith is in Liberty Jail. And the Lord describes all the ways in which the world can turn and has against Joseph and then counsels, Know thou, my son, all these things shall give thee experience and shall be for thy good. We certainly can learn important skills and strengthen our faith by coming out of a trial even stronger than we entered. Even if it's a hard experience, we can choose to see it as an opportunity of living and experimenting. Christ Himself showed us the importance of obtaining a body and experiencing life. I mean, why couldn't Christ just study the plan of salvation, learn what His role was in that um, atonement? Why couldn't He just know all things? He came to earth. He experienced the rough waves in a ship and the calming power of the priesthood of, during the storm. He experienced love and kindness from His mother and father, the gentleness of a woman washing His feet with her tears the gratitude of a leper whom he healed, and the grief of friends when Lazarus died. He experienced the tenderness of Mary weeping for him when she did not find him in the tomb. He experienced Gethsemane, the cross, and cruelty. It wasn't enough to know theoretically. He experienced the reality of, of mortality that he might know and understand what we experience. He suffered and died for us that we might experiment and live. 
and I share my witness of Jesus Christ and His Atonement. We will be resurrected with our bodies after this life. With His help, we can repent, we can change, and become the person God wants us to be. So how do we truly learn from our experiments? The kind of learning that brings us closer to Christ. The Reverend Thomas Bayes, the patron saint of statisticians, proposed a method for updating prior knowledge with newer experimental results. If my daily focus is to be a good driver and a kind person, a single incident of distractively cutting someone off shouldn't have sufficient weight to convince me I'm a bad driver. But it is a valuable data point, challenging me to renew my efforts to be more conscientious in my driving and also to react charitably when others cut me off. However, if in my search for truth I find patterns in my behavior that do not fit with my view of myself, that evidence needs to be given more weight as I look to make necessary changes. Professor Carol Dweck, Carol Dweck at Stanford University has spent 25 years researching how people's self-concept matters in how they react to disappointment and failure, and what they do with results they don't like. In one of her seminal studies, she gave visual IQ tests to fifth graders and then randomly assigned the feedback each was given. One treatment group was told they had performed well and were praised for their intelligence. A second treatment group was told they had performed well and were praised for their hard work. Next, the children were given opportunities to practice different types of questions. The students praised for effort overwhelmingly picked harder problems than the students praised for being smart. Then Dweck's teams gave the fifth graders an eighth grade IQ test which they all bombed, but the kids praised for effort performed better than those praised for intelligence. And this makes sense in retrospect, I suppose, given how the different groups had practiced. But then Dweck's team did something especially clever. They readministered the same level of fifth grade tests the children had all aced earlier. Again, the effort praised children outperformed the intelligence praised kids. But here's the surprising thing. The kids praised for being smart actually did worse than they had in the first round of testing. It was almost as if they had grown dumber. Once they no longer believed they were smart, they weren't. Dweck has proposed there are two basic mindsets, a growth mindset and a fixed mindset. The assumption of those with a growth mindset is that intelligence, creativity, artistic ability, and other traits are flexible, not frozen, and they can be increased by continual practice. The assumption of those with a fixed mindset is that the traits are inherent and cannot be changed. And the problem with the fixed mindset is the belief that an outcome is somehow a comment on a person's very nature. If I cut someone off in traffic, it not only says I'm a bad driver, but that I'm a bad person. If I fail that exam, it means I'm not intelligent. In contrast, a, growth, a person with a growth mindset sees mistakes and failures for just these data points that can be used as Bayes proposed to update prior knowledge in order to improve. Our daughter Abby is a talented runner. When she was a freshman in high school, she became very focused on her performance and showing how fast she was. And she feared failing because it would mean she wasn't talented. One particularly hot fall afternoon, she chose not to run in a meet because it just seemed too hard for her to run well. In contrast, by her senior year, she used each meet, regardless of circumstances, to learn how she could improve. She scored in every race. She ended up as her team's most consistent runner, placing nearly better at nearly every meet and running in the state championship. 
She demonstrated a shift from a fixed mindset to a growth mindset. And this is the good news, which Dweck's subsequent research showed, is that you can learn to have a growth mindset and see yourself more as this work in progress that will improve with time and effort. And I've seen many of you in my classes develop more of a growth mindset while learning chemistry. The really good news in Old English Godspiel or Gospel is that Christ's Atonement is very real and we are also not fixed, that can flex and grow. Now my own life experiments have been possible because of the people with whom I'm going to use the word collaborate. For years, my family motto, our family motto has been, um, Nielsen's do hard things. You can imagine our kids have not always been fond of the family motto. <laughs> However, we were rescued so many times our first summer in Africa that we actually changed our motto to, Nielsen's do hard things with help from God and others. <laughs> At one point, I was traveling in rural Uganda to meet the organizer of a women's co-op. It was raining hard, the streets were not paved, and by the time we arrived at the house, my friend Kristen and I were muddy. I really hesitated, though, to take off my shoes to enter the house. They were actually fairly expensive walking sandals. I had bought them specifically because I knew I'd be walking a lot in Africa that summer. So with some anxiety, I left them on the front porch. When I stepped in the house, I was astonished to see a paper on the refrigerator that said, As Sisters in Zion. And Chris and I actually started singing, and this lilting voice joined us from the other room. And then I noticed a picture of the First Presidency of the church on the wall. We were in this little slice of heaven. Our new friend greeted us with um, a very traditional, gracious Ugandan greetings. They say, You are welcome. And then you say, Thank you. It's kind of the opposite of what we do in the U.S. This woman was in the Makono Ward, and her husband was the bishop, and she told us her story. We met her kids. It was a glorious hour. And then we exited the house, and my shoes were gone. And I will admit that my soul sank, and all those lovely feelings fled. And then from around the corner of the house came a neighbor holding my clean shoes. I mean, it must have taken her the whole hour to get the caked, caked on mud off. And she simply said, you are welcome. And I felt the love of God and the goodness of people. And those shoes only mattered right then because they had given me the experience of seeing the kindness of strangers and realizing again that any hard thing I have done really has come through the help of God and others. And I love the ways that you serve and connect each other. I see you do this all the time. Earlier this semester, one of my students came to me distraught over failing a midterm. And we discussed several ways she might improve taking the practice exam as if it were real, uh, forming a study group, teaching the principles to others, trying more problems. She listened. She adjusted. She aced the next midterm. Last week in office hours, a different student expressed her dismay at a midterm, and the first student overheard her and immediately invited the discouraged classmate to join her, join her in her study group, and learn from all of their collective experience. Love for mothers is essential. We are not having the experience we want. And there will be many times we will be having an experience we don't want. So what else can we do then? May I suggest, with apologies to Crosby, Steeles, and Nash, if you can't be with the experience you love, honey, love the experience you're with. Do-do-do. <laughs> Rabbi Ronnie Kahana had a stroke to his brainstem in 2011. 
The effect of the stroke was slow enough that he was aware as his body gradually became paralyzed, starting from his legs just below his eyes. It's a condition known as locked-in syndrome. Family and friends to learn to communicate by saying the alphabet out loud and then having him blink when they get to the right letter and thereby spell out any message. His reaction to this experience was incredible. He spent hours pondering the beauty of God and life, wondering that he could experience such an exceptional state. He said at night his mind would soar and he would be in motion, swirling and twirling above the ground. By blinking his eyes, he wrote letters and sermons sharing his experience and declared, I want you to know that this too is heilige, holy in Yiddish. I am in a broken place, but there is holy work to be done. His willingness to search for truths in this trial helped him transcend his misery. His daughter said in a TED-Med talk that the family cocooned him in love, and he imagined moving his fingers while his loving family physically moved them in therapy, and then his body rekindled. Slowly, he began to feel electrical sensations in his arms. He eventually regained enough feeling to be able to breathe on his own and then to talk with his own voice. Every day, he witnessed another miracle. His body developed like a baby, but he observed it with all the experience of a 57-year-old mind and felt wonder and gratitude. He used his new understanding of truth to grow and was remarkably not afraid. The truth set him free. Our life experiments can be tools to learn truth and to make changes if we are not afraid. The pioneer chemist Marie Curie believed nothing in life is to be feared. It is only to be understood. My daughter Katie is in a class studying Mormon women this semester and shared with me the story of another pioneer, Jean Rio Griffiths Baker, who, like many converts from England, had to face an ocean of unknowns to travel to the U.S. to be with the saints. In 1851, before she set out to cross the plains to Utah, she wrote in her journal, the future will most likely be an account of trials, difficulties, and privations, such as at present I have no idea of, so as to be able to provide against them. But as you are aware, um, I am not one to go through the world with my eyes shut. And Paul teaches us to approach life experiences using the Savior's Atonement in 2 Timothy 1.7. It is one of my favorite scriptures because of the three gifts from God that are specifically mentioned. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Our earth life. For us, this university life is a unique place for exploration, experience, and discovery. Let's use our life experiments with Christ's help to turn theory into reality. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday at 11 a.m. Mountain, 1 Eastern, for an hour of inspiration and recentering. Today we heard Experiment and Experience by Dr. Jennifer B. Nielsen. Find a link to the full text, audio, and video of this address at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.